analysis is a key aspect and could be extremely powerful to explain and also sometimes to help to shape uh, policies. I would like briefly also in the current uh, minutes uh, to speak about uh, how international courts historically used to use the media. And, and secondly, I would like also, because I believe it's very timely and it's very interesting also, to look at the Isenabri case and how justiceinfo.net and other media will have to follow it. I think it's a very interesting example. So to go back to history, uh, what is interesting, at one point, Prosecutor Jackson wrote to Truman, President Truman, and told him uh, in his letter, we need to establish incredible facts through credible means. Uh, and uh, the mean to demonstrate these incredible facts was a famous film which was done under the supervision of John Ford. So here, and it was the first time ever that cinema entered in a courtroom. And that was really a change. And uh, interestingly, a lot of people were not watching so much the film, but they were watching uh, the defendants and how they behaved. So there was a kind of circulation about uh, uh, the, uh, the way people had to position themselves in regard to the film which was projected about the concentration camps. Interesting also to note that the British wanted to make uh, a documentary about uh, uh, the concentration camps and more particularly about the extermination of the Jews. Uh, and Hitchcock actually accepted and worked on, on that project uh, for a while. But very soon the British authorities decided that it was not such a great idea because there was a lot of uh, 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 tension in Palestine, which was not yet Israel, and it was not the time to portray the Jews as uh, uh, only victims. So the project with Hitchcock was, was abandoned. So what it tells us, many things. On the one hand, you had John Ford and Hitchcock, which were interested to work on key issues of the time, but in the same time, the political dimension was very key in the fact that, for instance, uh, while the film was not done at the time. If we take a second example, which is the Eichmann trial in 1961, which is really amazing, it was the first time that TV, TV was uh, addressing a global audience uh, coming from a trial. So TV was entering the courtroom. And here again, you see cinema with Nuremberg trial, here it's TV, addressing 37 countries, the audience in 37 countries at the time, so it was a global audience. And here again, it's, uh, and obviously the political objectives of Ben-Gurion were are well known, and Hannah Arendt and others have written about it, uh, to cement the nation, the new Israeli nation, uh, to legitimize the state of Israel, and so on, and so on. But the, the, main, uh, the main fact was also to recall the events of uh, uh, the suffering of the Jews in order to, to get a political message across. So here again, this political dimension and courts are interestingly linked. Third uh, example, ACTY. And I believe the ACTY is fascinating because it's the, the, the courtrooms were designed 
as TV studios from the beginning. And that was a major change. Uh, you have six cameras inside the courtrooms. So really, the question of how to address a global audience was really from the beginning thought from this perspective. And we, we know that there is only 30 minutes delay uh, between what is being uh, 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 posted online and what's happening uh, in the courtroom. So it's almost live. And that also creates a new types of relationship. Because uh, Milosevic, for instance, was not so much addressing the courts, uh, but he was addressing uh, the public opinion at home. So he was using the court as a political tribune. So that changes totally uh, the way the message was, uh, was transmitted. And I guess from the court perspective, it was quite a shock. Uh, because we were sure that we were able, with this uh, technology, to, uh, to, uh, to, to be able to be very pedagogical with, uh, with a trial. And actually, it was the other way around. And what is, for me, extremely interesting also, is at one point the procedures in the ICTY changes. And from my perspective, it is also because of a global audience. Here, I'm referring to the guilty plea. You know that guilty pleas didn't exist in 1993 when the STY was created. It was introduced in 2001. And on the one hand, we have the pressures of the Security Council members saying it's too costly, it takes four years, uh, it's $10 million for one trial, um, you cannot go on, and, and it's too technical. People just want, we need to have quick results. And guilty plea was, was the, the technical, uh, technological answer to that problem. But I think the second dimension to guilty plea was also to post online 10 minutes video where someone said, uh, I'm sorry for what I did. Um, and here, there is a very interesting trade-off between charges which are being withdrawn and this pragmatic approach of law and justice. And if we take one example, it's too long to take too many examples, I will just, wow, sorry, I'm going much too long. Uh, uh, we can think about Vienna uh, Plavstic, who was the former president of Republika Srpska. The charge of genocide was withdrawn, and in exchange, uh, she pleaded guilty, and in the same time, it was a kind of, if you watch it online, you will see that you know, the admission is very weak. And as soon as she was uh, uh, back in her country, she, she said she really, really disregarded what she said earlier at the court. So the, problem, the problematic between uh, public opinion and courts is, uh, is needs to be looked at very carefully. And we see the limits of, uh, I mean, how the political environment is basically um, uh, creating a very difficult situation for the court. Even if the ICTY, by and large, is doing fair proceedings, its perceptions is, is not very good by the societies on the ground, Serbs and Croats on the one hand thinking it's a Western tool, and mostly Bosniaks thinking it's some kind of alibi for non-action at the time during the war. Now, very quickly, I would like to mention the Isanabre case. I think it's uh, 
uh, yesterday we discussed about evidence. And just by chance, oh, it's a long story, but to make it very short, I just would like to show you something. It takes only two minutes, if I'm able to make it to work. Okay. So this is Reed Brody 10 years ago, and but it's going to, f uh, so we don't, uh, what's happening? I don't need the sound, I just want to, uh, no, no, I don't need the sound actually, uh, but uh, just will go just a bit further. Yeah. Yeah. So we are entering here uh, the former headquarter. We don't need the sound. The former headquarter of the, uh, the DDS, the political police, and suddenly, to our shock, we are discovering the archives of uh, DDS, of uh, the Chadian uh, repressive police of Isenabre. And the first, actually, paper we take is a letter to thank the CIA for training the interrogators of the DDS. And suddenly, you know, it's for, uh, it's a long story, but suddenly we realize here, and we are working on, on these papers, that we got the archives, and that's a crucial moment to build the case suddenly the whole discussion is going to shift after we discovered these files. Um, it was not possible to go to that building for more than 10 years and for strange reasons uh, we were allowed to go. Uh, and, and that's the, uh, the evidence we found here of the core of a case against Isenabre. Uh, so for us it was quite an amazing moment and just to show you how actually journalism and courts could play uh, sometimes very much uh, uh, linked. And he's saying uh, here, it's just incredible. It's like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Nirvana for him. And uh, um, so maybe we can, uh, uh, there is a very funny, uh, so now you will see he's so happy, Ray Brody, that is trying to steal some papers. You will see, he will turn around and put some papers in his bag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we just watch that. So uh, we discovered uh, the archives of the DDS, we discovered the archives of the Truth Commission, which disappeared also, uh, the names of all the victims, uh, and the whole apparatus of the repress uh, repressive bureaucracy of Isenabre. So, no, no, it was uh, quite uh, so. Um, what is also interesting, the case started in, Isenabre was in power from in 1982 to 1990. So, just look now. He's trying to put in his, you know. <laughs> okay, we can stop it here. Uh, thank you. Um, Um, what is interesting is uh, Isenabre was very much protected by the Americans and the French because he was uh, 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 on the front line against Gaddafi. And then in 1990, uh, he is overthrown by Idris Deby, the current president of Chad. And what is really uh, interesting is there is a local and some survivor, survivors of a prison uh, tried to collect testimonies and we got 700 testimonies. But it's very difficult because Chad is an authoritarian regime. It is, 
It's Idris Deby, who was also uh, the former uh, commander-in-chief of Isenabre, so he might be linked to all sorts of crimes which have been committed. So that's quite difficult. So not, not much is happening. Obviously, there is no media coverage. 1999, what's happening? Pinochet case. Suddenly, the concept of universal jurisdiction is being <coughs> is, uh, getting big. And, uh, and here comes Human Rights Watch. And Human Rights Watch is portraying Isan Abre as the African Pinochet. Uh, and and sad, there is a bit of coverage. In 2001, there is um, doing this film with, for a French and German uh, channel, Arte and the Swiss TV as well. And so the coverage is becoming bigger and bigger. And we see that there is this element of a local NGO which is not able, basically, to get its message across worldwide. Then you have an international NGO like Human Rights Watch, who is able, who has the right connection, to make it in the public sphere. And then you have all the media who are, which are coming and play a major role in, um, in disseminating the information. I won't go more into the details because uh, time is is, is running. I just also would like to mention the number of uh, actors. So I just mentioned the international NGOs, uh, local uh, association of victims, but also a Senegalese court since 2000. Chadian courts also have been uh, uh, working on the case. A Belgian court has been also involved at one point. The EU Parliament, the African Union, uh, the International Court of Justice. So basically, it, did, I mean, it mobilized so many different tools. And now, with the case opening on July 20th, uh, the situation is we are, we are four different audience, audiences, and each one has a very specific dynamic which we need to address. Uh, very quickly, in, uh, in Senegal, it's polarized because actually Senabre was able to flee with the national treasury of his country and bribe a lot of uh, the media in Senegal. So the discussion is quite heated between two opposite camps. In Chad, the, the dynamic is totally different. In Chad, uh, uh, you have Idris Deby, who is part with, on the side of a prosecutor, officially, but in the same time, he's very much afraid to be himself indicted. So there is such a very ambiguous relationship with the trial. Um, moreover, you are, we are talking about a country which is absolutely huge, only 12 million people, uh, with 3% internet connections, with 66% of the people who are not alive at the time of Isenabre. So how are you addressing these demographics and these political realities? Uh, Third, there is the, it's an African Union uh, trial. Uh, so that's after what's happening with the ICC, that will be really a uh, litmus test uh, to see how this uh, trial will constitute a precedent for other cases. And fourthly, we'll see how the rest of the world will, will follow the, the trial, in particular the Americans and France who are so much uh, strong supporters of this outbreak. So basically, to come back to Justice Info, I think it's very important to, to address the different dynamics in, the four, in the, these four different dynamics. Uh, 
um, and uh, and to to occupy the central square, trying to give facts, but also strong analysis about uh, the case and what it might lead to in the future. Thanks so much. Just in, in between, and I think it's important to stress on, on one issue of the Isana Bray case. I think a lot of people in this room know that the, the rift between the ICC and the African Union, no charging of, of an acting head of state. I think it's important to stress that the Isana Bray case was in fact referred by the African Union as a decision to put him on trial. It is the first time the African Union itself requested to indict the former head of state. So that plays a new sort of approach to the game. Hi, good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me. So I'm going to shift gear completely here. Uh, I need to basically explain to you uh, a case study, which is the project we embarked on with people's intelligence. And so I'm going to look mostly at what I want to discuss today is mostly some of the design issues uh, we're facing and also some of the ethical concerns uh, that we're trying to tackle uh, while we're basically uh, forging ahead and trying to develop the technology. So um, maybe first a few words about the technology itself and, and the ideas that uh, underpins it so that I mean I can contextualize things a little bit. So uh, let's go to the, to the field of crowdsourcing. So everybody knows maybe about uh, some of the well-known platforms such as Ushahidi and others that allow people basically to send information that is then aggregated on a platform and visualized on a map, right? Now there are several problems with uh, many of the crowdsourcing technologies out there um, and uh, the initiatives behind it that often the information that comes into this platform is very low quality. So it, it, it misses uh, very important markers such as when and where something happened, uh, what happened exactly, how many victims are there, uh, how does the person know, um, is it something that the person saw by himself or uh, just heard about. So it, it becomes very noisy information and it becomes very resource intensive basically, I mean, to analyze and to, to sift through all that information and to present it in any sensible way. Um, besides that, I mean, many of the, the, the initiatives that are running such platforms, I mean, are not providing any feedback to the sources. So, I mean, people are sending in information and then they don't know what happens with, what happens with their information, how that information has been used, packaged, uh, republished sometimes, and also they don't get any information uh, in exchange. Like, uh, okay, great, I mean, I just reported a killing, uh, what can I do now? Um, the, the dialogue stops there. I mean, actually, there is no dialogue. Often. Um, and, and third, uh, there, is, there is a big problem often also in terms of, of security. Uh, when, when I mean security, it's supposed to the, the, the safety of the, the source. I mean, rarely they're informed about the risk they are actually taking to send information over unsecured channels. Uh, the data is not per se protected pretty well. The source's identity uh, is not per se protected either. So that also basically uh, uh, leads to, to quite a lot of problems, especially when we're dealing with situations which are highly volatile. I mean, such. Uh, as the one we've been talking uh, about uh, in the, over the past days. So uh, looking at those problems, we're trying to come up with a, a few solutions, I mean, to, uh, to solve those. And um, the idea we have behind people's intelligence, but I'm not going to delve too much into that. I mean, if you guys want to speak to me about it, I mean, please uh, uh, approach me afterwards, because I really want to go to, to, to the other issues. Uh, but um, the main idea is to automate a series of processes, I mean, to solve some of those problems. So, we want to automate the collection processes of information so that the information that comes in is relevant and complete. And uh, the way we to do that is basically, I mean, to have dialogues with the sources on the ground. So, I mean, to ask them simple questions which they would answer and then continue the dialogue until we get, you know, all the necessary information. So, where did the incident happen? Please provide us with the location. Okay, location is correct. We can find it in our shape files. Next question. 
uh, when did it happen? Please, you know, I mean, uh, use a specific format. Okay, next question. What happened? Please explain to us in your own um, own words what you saw and so on. And then once you get all that information, actually, you're in a better position to automate the second process, which is the evaluation of the information. You get structured information, which is categorized, and uh, so you can actually start triangulating it and looking for similar characteristics between a different piece of information, which gives you a better idea if some incidents or information about incidents actually corroborates with other uh, other reports from other sources. Now, uh, a third part, of course, is like sometimes you can't do that. I mean, sometimes, I mean, uh, you just get one report from one source. You don't know who's the source, or the reliability of the source is unknown. The credibility of the information is unknown. You can't triangulate it with other reports from other sources. So what do you do? Well, then you need to go and verify that information. And that's and basically, it's, it's, it's a bridge to what was said yesterday by Eli, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and a way of doing this is, again, I mean, by establishing dialogues with the people on the ground that you know. I mean, so as an organization that is running such a platform, for example, well, you could basically send a documentation request to the people on the ground that you know who are in the vicinity of that incident and ask them, basically, and provide additional information you could use to verify the question you got that from an unknown source and which you couldn't triangulate. And if situations allows it, you can even enlarge, I mean, basically, these processes to a larger a large population and ask even citizens basically, I mean, to come uh, up with a new information about an incident. But again, security first. Um, and then the last, uh, the, the, the last bit, of course, is the feedback I was talking about. I think um, if we work with organizations, organizations have lots of data at their, at their disposition that they actually can feedback uh, some circumstances, I mean, to people on the ground, but often they don't have the means to do so. So um, let me take an example. Take OCHA, for example. OCHA is uh, providing um, 3W maps, uh, the who, does, what, where. Um, but those maps are rarely updated. So I mean, uh, you know who, is, who are the actors in a certain area, but yeah, they're static, right? So what you need to do is basically to have that information, uh, that information needs to become dynamic. So you need to have updated information about who does what, where. And you need to make sure that you know, I mean, um, is the services in a certain area is actually accessible and operational. For so when you have that information, then you can feed back that information to your sources. So if somebody is reporting, for example, an act of sexual violence, well, you can tell that person, well, I mean, uh, since it's on that date and in that area, that uh, this health center, for example, has uh, retroviral drugs that would help you, I mean, prevent you to um, get tra uh, sexually transmissible diseases. Or uh, basically where, you know, a, a, a village has been attacked, for example, okay, where is the nearest IDP camp, which offers some kind of protection in uh, the form of peacekeepers, basically. For example, I mean, there are just different scenarios, but that depends very much on the organization you're working with, the data they're willing to share, and so forth. So that's just about the idea that we're trying to develop here into a technology. But um, so let me go now into what I really want to address uh, during uh, this talk. How many? Ten minutes. Yeah, I have time. Good. So. Over time. So what what we propose is basically. Uh, two shifts in current paradigms. I mean, the first one is already kind of exposed. It's like to move from monologues, people sending over information which are used by third party uh, for their own purpose, to dialogues, conversations, where actually, I mean, you engage into conversations to get information, but also to provide information in return. And um, also, we believe, um, and I'll address this as one of the principles later, that, I mean, the, the information remains the property of the people, right? I mean, it's, I mean, they're the ones who produced it in the first place, so they should also be able to access it. And not only that, they should be able to access other people's information if those people have allowed I mean, that information to be shared or published. 
um, so that they don't always have to wait for other people to send them information. They can themselves query information <coughs> that they think is interesting for them. A second paradigm shift that we'd like to address is, I mean, to move from unstructured data, which is very big now. I mean, everybody wants to do uh, big data stuff. Uh, looking at, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of tweets, a lot of Facebook pages, sorry, <laughs> and did some research on that, I mean, uh, uh, no, no criticisms intended here, um, you know, and try to make, and try to understand, you know, I mean, what is happening there, but often the information on those pages, like I mentioned, I mean, doesn't have the quality required, I mean, to make, I mean, for you to understand what is really happening, and you can't actually start triangulating that information because it, 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 it misses all those markers, the when, the where, the what, and so forth. So what I would like to propose is to go back to small data, to structured data, and that would allow you actually, I mean, to make that analysis and then to leap, you know, I mean, and, and, and have a better understanding of the situation you're, you're dealing with. Okay, so um, maybe then a few words about uh, design because I think it's very important. I mean, um, what we're trying to achieve is not is not it's, it's not a simple simple thing. It's not just a new piece of technology. It's trying to to address a series of processes and try to, I mean, to better them, to automate them as much as possible. So it's actually complex. Um, so the, the way we, we look at this is that uh, we, we adopt what, we, what in the field people call human-centered design. Uh, in the, um, the um, field of uh, software development, it's agile uh, software development methodologies, which means you work with the users. Uh, you work with the organizations that are going to make use of that technology. So that's basically how we started. I mean, first we started researching the market, trying to understand, okay, who are the players here? Um, what are they doing? Which technology are they using? Um, are they in competition? And I know we're in the NGO world, I mean, there's no competition, we synergize. Uh, <laughs> but um, is there any competition? Are there people actually we could, you know, I mean, add a bandwagon with, or I mean, or actually are we doing it? And well, thank you very much, it's done, problem solved, let's move to something else. So you start with that, and then once you have a bit of an idea of basically, I mean, the market of like, or I mean, whoever are the actors and what technology they use, then you start identifying basically, I mean, the organization you want to work with and that you think can bring this project forward. So in our case, uh, basically, we run a series of workshops with IOM, UNHCR, Free Press Unlimited right here, uh, Amnesty International, the RCRC, and we also went to Liberia to discuss with Liberia's building office and a set of uh, civil society organizations who also get some understanding of ground realities uh, where we believe we could do a pilot. And it's with them basically that we build our understanding of what the technology should do, uh, not just you know, our own ideas, but so we adapt it also I mean, to the ground realities. Another issue which from the start we think is very important is to make the technology as accessible as possible. Uh, because we're dealing with, I mean, the general term is affected communities, but often they are in hard to access areas. I mean, those are two big you know, I mean, words that are being used nowadays. But it's very true. I mean, um, you, you go into Central African Republic, I mean, and the moment you get Bangui, I'm pretty sure you won't have any internet connection. Uh, if people have a mobile phone connection, they will be using not this kind of mobile phone, but the old style. I know some people in the room have old mobile phones. Um, so you need to be able, basically, I mean, to also target those populations and not just the connected ones, not just, you know, I mean, the elite, basically. Um, so um, I think it's important to build technology if it is to address those kind of issues that is accessible by I mean the vast majority of the people. It means down. It means scaling down also. I mean the type of technology you're going to use. So in our case, we're looking at um, being totally communication channel agnostic. So people should be able to access us via SMS or USSD. That's what is used by MPESA and others to transfer money, for example, um, voice or if you have it, an app or an internet page. I mean. 
the communication channel should be agnostic. More importantly also, I mean, we have to depart from the fact that, I mean, people in the field, while we believe they are experts of their own realities, they don't per se experts in all fields of expertise. So, right, I mean, they, 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 don't might, they might not know about IHL, you know, about uh, human care and, uh, relief aid, uh, you know, and how it works and so on. So they don't know, they don't know our taxonomies, they don't know our categories, they don't know the definitions for each of those categories. So we shouldn't ask that for them. What we should do, though, is, I mean, to ask questions and then recategorize it according to our own taxonomies later. So it's to realize, I mean, that they know something we don't know, but we should phrase it in a way that doesn't require any training. So we need to build technology that is completely transparent uh, to the end user, basically. So it doesn't start to read a manual first about how I'm going to use this. No, it should be completely transparent and easy to use so that it, it, there is no burden of actually learning something and it can be accessed by anybody, I mean, with or without any training. Um, so yeah, I already mentioned the importance of closing the feedback loop. So it's basically allowing the people, I mean, basically to know what kind of information, um, I mean, what, what is happening with their information, and also to access information that they publish to publish by others. Um, another, I think, important point is um, security by design. So from the beginning, you have to think about security, and security is not just you know technological security. It's fine. I've encrypted my information. My communication is anonymized. Uh, all my data is safely stored. You know, uh, somewhere nobody can access it. It's offline. You know, the identity of my sources. You know, have been redacted. All of that. All of that are technological solutions to problems. Um, fine, great. But you have to go beyond that because I mean, there is no silver bullet for security. I'll give you an example. So. You use, a, you use a normal mobile phone, I mean, to communicate, uh, you know, I mean, some, some, just some, send some text messages, some information. Basically, you can have all the security of the data, I mean, once you get the information, but you can never protect the communication channel itself. Somebody with the right technology can interfere. They can attack the channel, they can impersonate you, they can manipulate the data, they can do a lot of different things. So you can't protect that. Okay. So you need, I mean, basically, I mean, as an organization who is deploying technology that, I mean, uh, which has one part, basically, which is insecure, you need to take a series of actions. Uh, the best action you can take, I believe, is that, I mean, from the beginning, you need to run what we call situation threat and risk analysis, so that you understand who are the actors on the ground, what are the capacities, what are the te technological capacities to interfere with you, you know, and what kind of uh, risks there are that, I mean, the, the threats they pose to you, I mean, might actually occur. And then you have to devise mitigation plans. And mitigation plans include not deploying the technology because you think it's too risky for your users. Or deciding that there are some certain questions you're not going to ask, certain data you're not going to collect because collecting that information might actually put the users in danger. Right. So that's for you know, when the communication channel uh, is insecure. Now say you have the latest app which is encrypted, anonymizes, everything is great, right? You still have the app on your phone. The moment you stop that roadblock and somebody snatches your phone from you and sees the app, what do you do? You might be perceived, you know, as somebody who has been communicating, you know, I mean, information about something, I mean, to a third-party organization, and that might make you a target. Is there a solution for that? The panic button? Do you really have time to? Oh, wait, oh, I have to take it out. Three clicks. What was the pin code? What was the pin code? I mean, you know, I mean, you are like in a stress situation with an AK to your head. <laughs> you know, what do you do? Do you have time to go into the panic button? I don't know. So all of those things need to be thought of. The organizations running such projects need to think about those issues, need to be able to inform their users about the risk they're taking, the mitigation uh, um, policies they can implement, and try to guide them to those policies as well. Because often I've seen 
um, I've seen a website that says, okay, great guys, so I mean, if you want to report information from, say, you know, I mean, a country area, say it's Syria. Okay, so you have to create a Huffington email address because that's safer than Gmail. Okay, use Tor. Okay, uh, you know, I mean, uh, and all those things. Often, people don't even understand what you're talking about, right? I mean, even myself, I mean, okay, I use Tor, I know how to install it, but I mean, if you read just the, the, the explanation of Tor when you install it, it says, well, depending if you're behind the firewall or not, you might have to adapt this port or this thing. And I'm like, okay, I kind of understand technology, but I'm lost here. So, what do you expect from people who have even no understanding of technology? I mean, there's no way they can adapt to that. So there's also responsibility on behalf of the organization deploying technology in the field to inform the users about the risk they're taking and what they can do about it. But not just like, go to this website and do whatever they say there. No, you have to guide them through certain steps so that they can take, to, I mean, you, you can be pretty certain that uh, they, they, will, uh, they will be relatively safe. Another thing also, and maybe that's, yes, two minutes, excellent, two minutes. perfect. So. Um, I touched upon ethics in a way, basically, I mean, dealing with security issues. I think, and, and the, the, the need to inform about the risks, about using technology, and, and so on. Now, there was another issue which I also touched upon, which I think is also very important, um, is consent. It's not just, I mean, informed consent about the risk that people are taking and are willing to take, I mean, to, to, to send information to you, but also about the consent about people, I mean, about um, the use of the data that the people are providing. So, I mean, you, I mean, ICRC, for example, where we're discussing with them, it's very simple. Uh, we, we, we ask them three questions, basically. Do you, want to, do you want to publish your data? Yes, no? Okay, you want to publish your data? Okay, then it's public, so no, no more questions. Okay, you don't want to publish your data? Fine. Do you want to um, share your data with other humanitarian organizations? Yes, no? And do you want to share the, your data with the authorities? And once you get answers to those three questions, the organization basically knows what it can do with your data. And you also know what might happen with your data. But then you also, need to inform the person what actually happened with your data. Has it been published on the website? Has it been shared with a third party organization? How can you access it at a later stage? Can you actually edit it? Uh, you know, I mean, can you provide additional information and so on? So, I mean, these, these things are really important as well. 45 seconds, that's perfect. So, let's, let's finish on a positive note. Challenges. Uh, <laughs> you thought this was it? No, there are more. <laughs> okay, so, um, Language obviously is a challenge, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, French, English, great, uh, Spanish, great. You know, I mean, the machine can probably, you know, I mean, interpret it, uh, manage it, uh, deal with it, no problem. Uh, what about vernacular languages? I mean, uh, what about Sango in Central African Republic, or I mean, Swahili even? I mean, which is the large, uh, largest spoken language in East Africa? I mean, not sure the machine is yet, you know, I mean, capable of dealing with it properly. What about people who are illiterate? They can, I mean, they can't even write a text message. So I mean. You know, what, what do you do with that? So there are some technici technological, you know, I mean, solutions to these, uh, but uh, much more resource intensive. Mm -hmm. No, it's okay. Thirty more seconds. So it basically, for example, you can deploy IVR, so uh, interactive voice response systems, where you guide a person to the same series of questions, but then you end up with an audio file. Audio file needs to be basically transcribed and then maybe translated. How do you deal with that? That's really resource intensive. Microtasking. That's the solution, right? I mean, you spread, you know, I mean, all your little uh, audio files or whatever, you know, little tasks that you have, I mean, to, you know, a large amount of people. was also proposed yesterday, if I remember well, in part of one of those discussions. So, I mean, to engage, basically, I mean, take Amnesty International. They have a huge network of volunteers who, for now, are dis distributing flyers in the street and trying to get your money. Great, let's fund that, okay? But 
I mean, what about engaging them with little tasks about, hey, would you translate you know, this message from that language to that language because you actually speak that language? Or what about you know, I mean, telling us if those two records of information match, I mean, there are similar matching criteria, and help us basically with you know, I mean, dealing with that background. Um, and then, of course, call centers are another resource-intensive solutions to those problems. And then, very last challenge, there's also the cultural differences in use of technology. Right? I mean, some cultures are really good at texting. Some cultures never text. They call. They just, they just systematically call. They like to hear other people's voice. So then you deploy technology in a certain context, and it turns out nobody's sending you any messages because it's not part of their culture. So you also have to think about all those issues when you basically design and deploy technology. Thank you. Yes. Um, when I was, yeah, I'll I'll try to do that. Um, I uh, I wanted to. Sh I, I was thinking a long time in advance of. Uh, we can put a slideshow on. Uh, um, so I'm uh, Leon Willems, and I'm the director of Free Press Unlimited. It's a Dutch-based media development organization, and our creed is people deserve to know. In other words, I wanted to share a, common, uh, a number of common principles, and I think it's important because in many of the discussions we had until today, we're talking about very complex abstract issues, but somehow there need to be, in my view, um, a set of uh, basic principles that underlie our work. One of those principles is that journalists sh should not be tasked with transitional justice tasks because it's not their job. So the basis of our uh, organization is that people deserve to know. In other words, we think that every person has the right to know and therefore that withholding information from them is in and of itself problematic. And as I said, um, it means that the right of expression uh, which is a, a, a right under the uh, UN Charter for Human Rights and the European Treaty for Human Rights. Uh, well, w we can uh, see here on the map of press freedom that that is not uh, happening in, in many parts of the world, especially not in conflict situations. That's not all new to you. And the map where we work is actually uh, almost like a mirror of that. But then, um, so... Uh, maybe to come back to something that uh, was uh, a relevant theory at the time when I studied, back in 1823, when the first communications journalism started. Um, so I, I studied in the, the, the early 80s, and communication science was something new. And this was the, the dominant uh, uh, theory, that somehow the press has a privileged position to act as a gatekeeper on behalf of the public because the politicians could not be accessed by the entire public. Now, of course, technology, which is the main topic of what I'm trying to convey here, technology has changed that dramatically. People now you know, converse regularly through their apps with their politicians, whether they know them or not. They do it through Twitter, they do it through Facebook, they do it through direct messages in many ways. So in other words, the the whole concept of the journalist as a privileged person in the information paradigm has disappeared. And so the reporter, you know, the first job of the reporter started in 1650 
with the coming of the first coffee house, and actually one of the first coffee houses was here in Oxford, uh, 1650, the Grand Café. The coffee house was the first place where reporter, the job of, of professional reporter started, because politicians gathered there. The public had no idea. Uh, the book um, uh, printing books was just invented, and people went going to the coffee house to basically hear what politicians were talking about. They put it in print. So the first job of a reporter is to report. Of course, that has changed a lot because with this claim and this position, this privileged position, suddenly the press became a power actor. And consequently, at the moment when technology uh, coming, uh, the press basically has to find a new role. And that is why journalism is under stress in crisis, why media income earning models have disappeared. And so you see that journalism is looking for a new mission, if you will. And in my view, one of the problematic aspects of journalism today is that journalists are no longer needed to report on what is happening. When a plane crashed in, uh, in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, it was on Twitter before it hit the main news on television or the radio. So journalists are not, that's, that is a very fundamental shift in thinking about journalists. So journalists are no longer there to report what is happening in most areas, in most cases. There are remote areas like maybe uh, the outskirts of northern Mali where there is no one there to report. But largely, parts of Pakistan, etc., Reporters are everywhere, uh, uh, citizen reporters, people who tweet, etc. So the press is there to make sense of it all. That is, for now, that's my conclusion, that journalists are there to make sense of it all. There's an enormous information cloth, and people don't understand it. This is why I think media literacy is actually extremely important, and we need to put more uh, emphasis on it. So... One of the problems of that uh, previous model was that the press around the world, and that's why um, many of you yesterday talked about the problematic issues of the press being um, on the side of power holders, is a, direct, uh, is a direct consequence of this model, because the press is actually more interested to bring the politicians down than to serve the public. So my organization thinks that downward accountability and acting on behalf of the citizens is the new way to make sense of the profession of journalist. And I'd like to take you through a couple of examples. Radio de Banga is a shortwave radio uh, that serves uh, roughly six million listeners on a weekly basis uh, in Sudan. And it started because I was involved in the United Nations radio that was created for Sudan. But unfortunately, we couldn't get a license to operate in the north of Sudan. So this is a radio that is working with a network of journalists inside Sudan, um, uh, but is operated, uh, the broadcast aspect of it is operated from the Netherlands. The interesting part is, and this is why I think we have to really think about what the role of journalists is, is that, for example, as Pierre said, uh, President Bashir was held up in South Africa. He was eventually released. Well, who here knows why he was released? Who thinks he was released because the South African government doesn't believe in the ICC? One? I had, I had half a story to do with 
South African peacekeepers. All right. Well, okay. So you're very, very well informed. But most of you think that it has something to do with the, the political aspect of the South African government, right? So these guys reported that at the time that President Bashir was released, the troops of President Bashir held 1,200 peacekeepers in Darfur at gunpoint, hostage. So if, and he threatened to kill them. And this news was brought by this small organization, um, basically because they are there. It's local news. It's interesting. This story is not really picked up by the international media, which shows that the economy and the politics of media are also problematic. Um, now into technology. Uh, as Christoph already said, you know, one of the most, and it, and it links to uh, security, one of the most threatening pieces of equipment that exists in the world today is the mobile phone. Because the mobile phone, basically, every time you see bleep, it communicates with the tower. And it communicates with the tower and gives access to everything that is on your phone. And every person who says that you can protect your data is wrong, you cannot protect it. It's a, it's a useless thing. However, we developed an app uh, because we believe that technology should be put in the function of man. So we developed an ad app which is called StoryMaker, which allows citizen journalists to do their own little video game, their own little video uh, strip. And uh, the, the, the funny part about it is that it includes an entire curriculum of journalism inside the app. So you can also learn how to become a good journalist. Something, someone yesterday, I believe it was Nicole, said very interesting about technology is that it be works better, or media work better, if they're locally rooted. So what is interesting is that we developed StoryMaker for the Arab Spring. And we had many problems in getting people engaged and interested in, in it because we had come up with the concept that if so many citizen journalists have important information, it should therefore be good to have an app that facilitates this. But in fact, the take-up of the app is not so, was not so automatic. Uh, we have 100,000 downloads now but we're three years in the project, so it's not viral. You can't call that viral. But the in interesting aspect is that people um, in Zimbabwe found StoryMaker on the internet and started their own community with it, and then asked us, can you help us because we have some issues with it. And this community actually now has a couple of hundred users who report on what is happening in Zimbabwe from the outskirts of Zimbabwe, not from Harare but as women who have problems uh, with hawker um, uh, licenses on the markets in uh, rural Zimbabwe. So it shows that actually um, local ownership in media is extremely important if you do want to do anything. Uh, another major issue which actually came to us because of the problems with security is that uh, uh, Nobody, I mean, we did a test, and I, and I urge you to, to uh, invite a um, um, technologist to your organization one day and ask him to crack your mobile phone. We did this in our organization, and we're supposed to be at least savvy or aware about security risks. This person managed to crack 70% of all the mobile phones in my organization, 50 people, within five minutes. Stripping all the data, having all the contact addresses, etc., etc. So we were thinking, how can we? Wh why is it so difficult? Security. Well, security is difficult 
for, for a lot of reasons that are very similar to why justice is difficult. It's very complex. Security is complex. It contains physical aspects. It contains uh, digital aspects. Um, you know, if you want to protect yourself about security, then this is what is out there. Uh, Christoph referenced Tor. So we thought we need to invent a project that makes this simpler. Huh? Help the users to make, to make it easier. So I'm very proud, and I, I couldn't bring it uh, to you today, otherwise I would have shown it to you. We developed a Net8 kit, which is basically a uh, Raspberry Pi, a very small computer that you can plug into your computer. And simply by doing that, all the communication is Tor-based. So you don't have to think about all the passwords and all the protocols, etc. So we're thinking a lot about how can we make security more attainable, more um, adaptable, more usable for people. And that is something that... Uh, uh, yeah, I'll try to round up. <coughs> um, that is something uh, that is very problematic because there's a lot of interest in technology. People fund uh, a million apps... Uh, but the problem is that 90% of all the apps that were produced with human rights funding, etc., have never been used. So there's a lot of waste of money. And it's basically because by design, people don't think about user. By design, people don't think... They think about solutions in the abstract world where we're sitting here in Oxford and they say, well, journalists should actually do this because it will be good for justice. But you go to a newspaper board, um, uh, room, and the journalists will say, why, why would I do that? So there are many problems that have to be thought again, over and over again, from the basic practical implementation level. Um, maybe one thing that I think is, is relevant to you and it relates to something that I think is absolutely crucial in everything that's to do with journalists, and that is trust. If you go to the world population poll of uh, Gallup, you will find that journalism in the world is the second lowest rated profession in terms of trust. In other words, you here do not trust journalists. Now, personally, I think that is right. You should not trust journalists. But especially if you're trying to assign tasks to journalists, and when journalists think about their function in society, you have to think that there is a massive trust issue. So one of the things that happens is that citizens today, because of new technology, but also because citizens are everywhere, have a lot of relevant information. And Christoph was talking about how that could maybe lead to prevent massacres. These are concepts that we think would be fascinating. Can we empower citizens to prevent massacres because you see the first indications? People knew that the government in Rwanda was buying machetes. It was a fact and it was known and it was, it was and, and, and yet there was no act because it came from people in harbors who were saying, we all of a sudden have, we have containers with machetes coming into Rwanda. What is What's going on? The problem is, if you want to leverage these issues and leverage them, you have to deal with the trust issue. Whistleblowers, citizens, 
who blow the whistle on malpractices usually end up at the wrong side of the equation. We organized an international whistleblower conference one year ago, and we invited a lot of whistleblowers from many cases around the world. 90% of them have a broken marriage, have lost their material resources, don't have a house anymore, uh, and are absolutely done in life. No opportunities, no job perspectives, etc. So there's an issue here. We need to protect the people who have this information before we dislodge all these, uh, 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 before we, we ask them to provide us with services. We have to protect them. So this is why I say the do no harm principle should be absolute the first and foremost you know, uh, criteria for development of technology. And it is not at the moment. It is not. We do not care enough about security and the trust that we are asking from citizens. So uh, I just wanted to tell you a little bit, and you can find more information about it if you go to the internet on AfriLeaks, PubLeaks, and Mexico Leaks. We developed a secure platform based on the Global Leaks technology where citizens can actually upload information anonymously to journalists, and the platform provides anonymous conversations between citizens and journalists. In Holland, one member of parliament was sent home. He was a, a member of the elder party uh, advocating for better pensions. But uh, one of the citizens loaded up information that said that when he was an employer, he actually didn't pay for the pension of his uh, employees. So he was forced to resign. In Mexico, um, the Mexican president recently had a suite in Brussels during his stay with the European Union and paid more than $40,000 for one night. It came from this platform. So there are ways to engage citizens and connect journalists to information that is possible, that possibly will lead to social benefits. But it is a complex relationship. Um, it requires a lot of energy, research, user interface, user experience, and time to experiment which is something that is usually not there because those people who have funds to invest in research, in development, usually want instant delivery because that's the time in which we live and that is the main problem that I wanted to highlight to you. Um, Christopher told you about people's intelligence. I think it's a, an extremely worthwhile effort with all the challenges that he mentioned involved, but I think atrocity prevention um, emergency assistance to citizens is so um, alienated from the people we're trying to serve that we have to shift the paradigm. That's what I like about this idea. Um, that's all I have to contribute. Welcome any questions. Uh, as I said, people deserve to know. today than yesterday, we lost some people. Uh, I think maybe we just do two breakout sessions. Uh, so I would ask the first half of the room to go to room B, please, which is here on the same floor, and the second half of the room to go to room E, which is upstairs. And, and I will redistribute <laughs> the facilitators as well. And in terms of, of, of speakers in the rooms, I suggest that, that Christoph and Leon dealing with the same issue of 
the technology stuff go to E. And people who would like to discuss with Pierre Justice Info uh, the whole issue of evidence and how that works into the court systems go to roll D. Are you going to roll Yes. Okay. okay. I need to talk. I mean, I need to talk with him. See to what extent we can make use of that platform. Also, I need to talk to him.